Thank you. Good to be here. So, yeah, good, good to be here with my wife, Sonia. She's right down here. And if you have your hand out, you'll see that the message this morning is entering into life with God. And uh, thank you, Dennis. Uh, I think he's worked extra hard to, to work on a, getting it up here so you can kind of follow along with me. You can see this uh, pulpit is kind of designed for people that are not six foot four. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I need an extension. <laughs> I thought about getting, do, do I need this microphone? Do you need this for the, the live feed or? No, but the last feed Oh, well, I was wondering if I, if I got the, if I got a, a stand and put it down here, would that be appropriate? I just turned it, I turned it on. Okay. You said you were informal. Is that too informal if I do that? <laughs> Yeah, let's go down here. We'll get real informal. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Colin, so I'm taking your... There we go. Yeah. Wow, that was a lot of maneuvering. Dennis, did you, for the portions of scripture, is it in the ESV? Yeah. It is, okay. So just a little bit about, uh, this is a small, small podium. <laughs> so just a little bit about uh, the work I do. It, it's, I, I would call it in the area of soul care for missionaries. Uh, so I come alongside missionaries and uh, to walk with them, listen, and help them to pay attention to what's going on on a deeper level. If you can imagine, whether they're missionaries or pastors, sometimes uh, we work a lot caring for others, and in that, sometimes don't pay attention to what's going on in our own life. And it's, I, from my own experience, I sense it's really important to come alongside others. So that's what I do. I, now with Zoom especially, I sit at home and I meet with missionaries around the world through Zoom. And then I travel uh, around the world quite a bit as well. And um, <clears throat> just an illustration from my own life is, uh, you know, there was a time, probably after we'd been in Czech, Czech Republic about 14 years, that I began, it's like I felt like I had gotten good at, at ministry, if I could say that. I knew, I knew how to do it. And, but there was something that I was longing for something more. It's like when I went in to be a missionary, I thought I would have this very like, deep sense of a relationship with God. And somehow, it's not like I lost the relationship, but I mean, somehow that kind of got put to the side a little bit as time went along. And I would get together with other missionaries. Uh, we got together every other week, a group of us guys. And we'd always say we're going to talk about something more personal. But it seemed like that would last about two or three minutes. And then we were talking more about strategies for our church plants. And I remember leaving that meeting and thinking, is that all I am, is a missionary? 
And I realized I was longing for something more, not just another strategy for church planning, not just how to make our church grow, but I was longing for God himself. I, I believe that God was, God was drawing me more and more to himself, that I'd spent a lot of time living life for God. And I believe that God was inviting me into life with him. So a danger of missions is there's a lot of expectations. There's expectations uh, from our, I hate to say our home churches, because you, for some missionaries, are home church, but I mean, as a missionary, you feel that, that you want to provide the best bang for the buck, if you could say that. So there's this expectation from your supporters in your home churches. Then there's also expectations from the national church that you're going, you know, they have their idea of what a missionary is supposed to do, so you have the expectations of a national church and then you also have your own expectations of what a missionary is supposed to be doing. And in all those expectations, trying to meet the expectations, it is easy after a while to lose that sense of a life with God because you're, wor you're working so hard to meet all the expectations. So that's a danger in missions. What are the dangers for you? What about us living here in Southwest Michigan? Our relational God is calling us to life with him. But often I'm not sure if we really know what that would look like in our own life. What would that really look like for me to have this sense of life with him? And I'll, I'll kind of explain what I mean by that as we go along. So here's the thing. And I think I heard it in your prayer this morning, actually. <clears throat> I can do a lot for a person without really getting to know them. And I can know a lot about a person without really getting to know who they really are. And I can even follow somebody's principles and use them to better my life. I can use somebody's principles for marriage or for finances but not really know how to be in a relationship with that person. I meet with many men, um, and a common remark that I hear is, I know it all. It's kind of my job is I meet with people, <laughs> and I listen, and I sit, and I listen, and help them to hear what's going on. And here's what I hear an awful lot. You know, I know it all up here, but I don't know how to connect it to my heart. So can we acknowledge that connecting what we know about God, can we acknowledge that that is a struggle? That we struggle connecting what we've learned, what we read in the Bible, that we struggle. I don't think I'm alone in that. And if you feel like you're alone in that, you're not. Because I think that we all struggle. Maybe there's one person here that doesn't, so maybe I shouldn't say all, but uh, <clears throat> I think we all struggle with this. And that's been a big part of my journey, is going from having it in my head and learning to get it down into my heart. Life with God. A number of years ago, I was walking in, we came back from overseas uh, in 2011, and it was, it was actually, I was ready to come back. My wife was 
she was ready to keep, to stay on in the Czech Republic, but I was, I felt like it was time for us to come back. I was kind of ready. And we came back in what's called re-entry. It was really, really hard for me. And my one place of sanctuary was Warren Dunes State Park. We lived on Browntown Road, if you know where that is, right across from the state park. And every day I would go for walks in the state park and that was my one place of, stink, of, station, or of sanctuary. And as I was walking one time, this verse came to mind was, and Enoch walked with God. And I, you know, this I didn't have a smartphone, so I couldn't look it up. So I was like, oh, I want to go back and see where that is in Scripture. You know, kind of find what it, what, what it all did it talk about Enoch, that he walked with God. You know, how does it explain in Scripture how he walked with God? So I went back, uh, looked it up. It's actually in Genesis chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. Verse 21 through 24. So, yeah, so I thought there was going to be a couple chapters about explaining how Enoch walked with God. There's four. And so what is the main thing it says there? And Enoch walked with God, and God took him. And in many ways, that was refreshing for me because I felt like I had spent so much of my life, again, li living by expectations one person saying, this is how you're supposed to walk with God. Another person saying, this is what it means. And, and I heard so many podcasts and sermons and everything. Not that podcasts and sermons aren't, aren't important, but sometimes we can be listening to everybody else and never really have it come down to our own heart. So I thought, Mike, what does it mean for you to walk with God? What does it mean for you to own that, to live into that? What does it mean for you to walk with God? And I thought, I'm going to find out. I like to call that the greatest adventure of life, is figure out what it means for me to walk with God. So through his word, through his spirit, through his church, through Christ in us, God shares himself with us. Is that true? God shares himself with us. He leads us. He makes us aware. He invites us to abide, to be with him, to know him, to experience his forgiveness, to experience his love. He invites us to enter into life with him. So can we be curious about this question? Lord, you're doing great back there, Dennis. <clears throat> Lord, what would you say to me about entering more fully into life with you? Can we be curious about that question this morning? Personally, for you. Lord, what would you say to me about entering more fully into life with you. So let's listen for what Jesus might want to say to us as we go through Luke chapter 10. And I'm gonna go, uh, just so you know, uh, I'm gonna go pretty quick. We're not going verse by verse here, okay? So <clears throat> there's quite a few verses in chapter 10. So Luke chapter 10 raises some questions. And there's three that particularly stick out to me. The first one is, and we'll read it in a minute. 
The first question is, where's the harvest? The second question is, who is my neighbor? And the third question is, there's so much to do, where do I start? And so we're going to be looking at those three questions and what I would believe would be the Lord's response to each one of those as we go through Luke chapter 10. Okay, so let's start off with reading Luke chapter 10, verse 1 through 16. You ready? So again, up here it's going to be in the, the ESV. In my Bible is the ESV, and I, I just found out when I got here that you used the NIV in your, in your pew Bible, so... It might be confusing. You, you can either read along or you can figure it out as we go. I think they're pretty close. Okay, so. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the har- laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the labor deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in Sath cloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you and hears, wait, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So Jesus cast the vision here for the 72 to go into the harvest. And he says, pray for laborers. And then he sends them, more or less, pray for laborers, but be a laborer. It's not going to be easy. Uh, In fact, you're going to be like lambs among wolves. That sounds like a pretty pretty tough place to be a laborer. So here's a question for us. Where, I guess it was a question that came up for me. Where's the harvest? So interestingly, the towns mentioned, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, they're only like three to five miles away from each other. So it's kind of, it's even, they're closer than if you think of Sawyer or Glean. You know, they're, this is a close, where he's sending them, it's pretty close. So sometimes we think of the harvest, when we think of going to the harvest, we think of some obscure place in Africa on the mission field, which sometimes that's where the Lord sends us on the harvest. But for these guys, it was the place they walked to. The places they were familiar with. I would suggest that the harvest is any place the Lord leads us to. Could it be that simple? The harvest is any place 
any person the Spirit leads us to. And I think as we cultivate life with God, we just might become more aware of the Spirit's leadings and the Spirit's promptings. So I think we start there with cultivating life with God and out of cultivating a deeper and deeper life with God, we'll be more aware of his promptings and his leadings and we'll find ourselves in the harvest. You follow? In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus knows where he plans to go, and so he sends the 72 up ahead to prepare the way. There's a very relational aspect to us for this. Jesus knows what he's doing, and he's inviting us to do it with him. We're not just out there on our own scrambling around. Jesus knows what he's doing, and he's inviting us to do it with him. He is the Lord of the harvest. And we simply go and do as he leads. And as we do, we are in the harvest. I've spent a lot of time trying to make things happen. I've been in ministry now for a good part of my life. And I spent a lot of time trying to make things happen feeling pressure to try and produce a harvest. I think it's caused some health issues along the way. (laughs) Trying to create my own harvest. As the 72 went, as Jesus told them, they return and Jesus says in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's quite a, they didn't see it. But Jesus, as they're out doing what Jesus tells them to do, doing what, following Jesus, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. There was a lot more going on when they were just simply doing as the Lord was leading them. There was a lot more going on than they realized. Where is the harvest? As we live life with God, his relational response to us is, pray and go where I lead you. I think it's just that simple. Pray and go where I lead you. Be ready. There's more going on than you realize. John 12, 26 says this, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there will my servant be also. We simply follow his leading. It might be your office. It might be your living room. It might be a casual conversation with a friend. A brother or sister in Christ might be struggling with doubt. Will I go where he's leading or will I give an easy, pat answer? Because I think going where he leads isn't just geographic, but often it might be actually the person that we're with, they begin to share 
I come up with my reasons, I give a quick answer, and I'm not willing to go where actually if I went there, I might be able to go deeper and actually care and minister to this person. Anytime we're together with others, there is a lot going on in the room. We may all be acting like we're happy. We may all be acting like everything's fine. But anytime we're together, there's a lot going on in the room. Can we prayerfully go where he leads? Can we prayerfully be ministers to one another? In John chapter 4, Jesus also talks about the harvest. You don't have to turn there. I think it's a story that most of us know. And this conver- he's having a conversation with his disciples, and it comes after Jesus had sat by a well and asked a woman, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. You know, the, the woman at the well. You know, most men would never, especially Jewish men, would never sit by a well and ask a woman, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. Most Jewish men would never go there. So like I said, perhaps going where he leads is geographic. Perhaps more often it's a willingness to listen, to care, and minister well to the place, to the people that God places on our path. going there. So next, we are introduced as we move along through Luke. We are next introduced to a man. We never get his name, but he is described as an expert in the law. And when it says an expert in the law, it's talking about the law of God, the scriptures. And the lawyer raises this question. Who is my neighbor? And I think the response is pay attention and do what is needed to love them. I think we're, if you look in your notes, I added the word to love them, okay? Pay attention and do what is needed to love them. So let's read Luke 10, 25 through 29. You with me? Luke 10, 25 through 29. And behold, a lawyer, again, a lawyer, a, a, a scholar, uh, um, what's the other word I'm thinking of? A scribe, you know, someone who knows the law, stood up to put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to in- inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you're correct. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So if you think about it, this man more than likely had the scriptures memorized. He had the law memorized. He would be able to sit and debate any point of scripture. 
I would love to know the Bible that well. Can you imagine? Wouldn't you love to, to have all the scriptures as far as the Old Testament or the law, the Pentateuch? Wouldn't you love to have that memorized? And in any conversation, you could sit and have a conversation and debate about uh, what the scripture says. It was what he was good at, but it wasn't what he really needed. In the verse leading up to this, Jesus had just sent out the 72 on, a, on their short-term mission, uh, the what we call kind of short-term mission trips. They come back and they're all excited. And Jesus tells them in Luke 10, 20, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then Jesus prays in uh, Luke 10, 21. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from, one translation says, know-it-alls, and revealed them to little children. So back to our passage. Here is a walking example, a know-it-all. He needed a posture to learn as a child, for the kingdom of God is such as these. There's no humble coming to Rabbi Jesus as a teachable disciple. There is a serious heart problem, and he's missing what is most important. Jesus put his finger on it when he said to the Pharisees, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Jesus, in, he says that in Matthew, he was actually quoting back from Isaiah. It wasn't a new issue. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 29, 13, and the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. How is that possible? How can a person know the correct things to say about God but miss life with God? How can that be? How does this disconnect? How can it happen? It's a question I think we need to spend time with. I think it's a question we need to kind of personally sit with. I don't know if any of you have learned uh, another language. Anybody here know another language? A little bit, okay. So we spent quite a bit of time learning Czech. Czech's considered the fourth most difficult language in the world, so although Hungarian, I don't know if your daughter, Gary, I don't know if your daughter learned Hungarian, but it's, it's a tough one as well. But the interesting thing with language in learning a language, understanding comes before speaking. That uh, you study and study and study and you can sit and you can start to understand what people are saying, but then to be able to actually to get something out of your mouth, that takes, it takes a lot longer to be able to speak. So understanding comes before speaking. But what's interesting is in the life of faith, speaking comes before understanding. Why? Speaking about God, knowing about scriptures, can bypass the heart and remain as information. It's much easier to speak about God than to have it really get down into our hearts. Scripture is full of examples of what God is longing for in us. 
He wants our hearts. He wants us. And in my mind, I can be categorized and I can have my Christianity organized. But in my heart, where relationships really take place, it's messy. It's really, really messy. It's more messy than I want you to know. God wants a relationship with me, with you, not just with your brain. The lawyer was not looking to be changed by an encounter with his rabbi. He was looking for a way to remain in control. The compartmentalizing of the faith, it's an age-old problem. One that I wish was gone, but let's be honest, it still lurks around in my heart and in yours. So what is the deeper issue here with the lawyer? It is the issue of control. It is the deep sickness of our hearts. There's something deep within us that wants to control our life and use God to make our lives happen the way we want. We all have control issues. I use the word all. We all have control issues. And I don't think I can say some. I think it's all. I think we all have control issues. It's part of our fallenness. What are yours? What are mine? What are we trying to protect within ourselves when we try to stay in control? When I am in control, when I'm taking control of things, I am not experiencing life with God. Instead, I bargain with him. I ignore him. I do what I can so that I can live my life the way I want to live my life. You follow me? There's an article, uh, this is the name of the article, I don't want God to love me, I want him to tell me what to do and then leave me alone. So, <clears throat> someone being a little too honest. So let me read just a portion of this article. <clears throat> I prefer a transactional dynamic in regard to my interactions with God. A sort of give and take whereas I do my part and he does his. I go to church, I give the charity, and in return, he keeps me safe and pays my bills. This approach allows me to avoid having any kind of, any kind of honest or vulnerable interaction with God, leaving, leaving me fully, uh, I'm sorry, leaving me feeling much more comfortable and in control of my life. I'm beginning to see that I don't really want God to love me. I just want him to tell me what to do and then leave me alone. 
Of course, I want God's favor in my life and to be happy. We all do. But do I really want God to know me? God knowing me means that he pokes around my heart only to find that I am a horrifically self-centered human being. Not really the kind of swap I was hoping for in my encounters with God. The lawyer has a problem. Control. He has mastered the scriptures, but the living word is not his master. There is no surrender. His knowledge of the word has led to a knowledge of God, not a relationship with him. Oh, I'm sorry. His knowledge of the word has not led to a knowing of God or a relationship with him. In fact, his knowledge, I would think, has strengthened his pride. And he's not experiencing surrender and joy. Listen to how Jesus laments over Jerusalem in uh, Luke 13, 34. You don't have to turn there. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you together like a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not have it. Their Messiah, the long-awaited one, has come, but they could not enter into life with their God. Control. And so the lawyer, the one in control, in verse 29 says, desiring to justify himself. It's almost getting embarrassing. I mean, picture this. The ugly fruit of control. He stands before Jesus, the Son of God, the God of truth. When you think that God is truth, it means there's no pretension in him. There's no lies. He's true. He's truth. He stands before Jesus and he tries to justify himself. The lawyer missed it. He missed the opportunity for life that was right before him. The underbelly of control is a foundation built on self-protection, self-reliance, self-justification, self-promotion. We protect our brokenness and our fallenness. Think about this. We protect our brokenness and our fallenness in exchange for a life with God. Jeremiah described it well in Jeremiah 2.13. He says, For my people have committed two sins, or two evils, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Once we are justifying ourselves, it doesn't matter how much we know or how good of things we do, we are not in a good place. It's a broken cistern. I've been to counseling. I've read many, many books. 
I've probably listened to thousands of sermons throughout my life. But too often, there's Mike trying to justify himself, whether it's with my wife, with other relationships, with all that I know, there it is, Mike trying to justify himself. I can still remember back in the Czech Republic, sitting on my couch, and the Lord beginning to do some work in my heart and bringing this to mind. Mike, why do you spend so much time justifying and protecting the very thing that kills the relationships that are closest to you and your relationship with me? Or hurts, kills. I always knew I was a sinner. But it was the first time I could actually picture what that looked like and how my control was affecting. It's almost like I had a picture in my mind of how this need to be in control, how, was it, how it was affecting my relationship with others and myself. <coughs> and as I sat there with that, I thought, why would I want to hold on to that? It's like it's so part of who I am, I didn't know how to necessarily get rid of it, but why would I want to hold on to that? The expert in the law was keeping the word of God at a comfortable distance, a distance where he could decide what applies to him. Control, fueled by the flesh and built on the foundation of self, was doing its thing. Let me read just a little bit from a, from a book called Shaped by the Word. <clears throat> the worst form of the false self is when it, be, he calls it the false self, this kind of religiousness, when it becomes religious. One of the chief characteristics of the religious false self is its ability to manipulate the scripture consciously or more often unconsciously to avoid a transforming encounter with God. The religious false self wants relationship with God on its terms, not God's. As we will see, the informational approach facilitates this manipulation of scripture. We often are not looking for a transforming encounter with God. We are more often seeking some tidbits of information that will enhance our self-protective understanding of the Christian faith without challenging or confronting the way we live in the world. The man, the lawyer, thought he could engage a debate about what a neighbor was and therefore remove any responsibility from himself. He wanted to be in control of defining a neighbor so that he didn't have to change. So Jesus an answered his question of who is my neighbor with a parable. And I think it's a parable we're fairly familiar with, many of us. So let's uh, take a look at, read through this. Luke chapter 10, verse 30 through 36. So he asks, uh, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed, on, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, so in other words, the two religious leaders saw him and passed by on the other side, but the Samaritan, who the Jews did not like, the non-religious, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went unto him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. <clears throat> so the road... The road from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho looks to be about 20 miles. I put it in uh, Google Maps and uh, the, walking, the walking trail. I think it said it takes about seven and a half hours, about 20 miles. So this priest is walking along the solitary road, and right on his path lies a man that's been beaten up and left for dead. So what happens? The priest goes out of his way to avoid him. Next comes the Levite. He's walking along, and... Uh, goes out of his way to avoid the dying man. So picture this. You're walking down Pardee Road. Everybody know where Pardee is? Anybody live on Pardee? <laughs> You're walking along Pardee Road and you come across a man that's been hit by a car. And he's groaning. And he's left there. He's in need of serious help. This isn't rocket science. You don't need to have the whole Bible memorized to know what to do here. This is the most basic understanding of what it means to care for another human being. So much so that a non-Jew who potentially didn't know the scriptures at all knew what to do. I think the lesson is pretty simple here. Pay attention. Be available. I will bring people into your life. Do what is needed to love them. I think it's that simple. Just pay attention. You'll come across people. I'll bring people into your life. Do what is needed to love them. It's easy to ignore what's in front of us. The people that God has already brought into our lives. Sometimes it's for a cause or for many other reasons that we ignore the people that are actually the Lord has already placed around us. Why did this priest and Levite avoid the dying man on their path? We don't really know. It doesn't tell us but maybe we could think about why we would. Here's some things I thought of. 
busy, in a hurry, preoccupied, distracted. I'm concerned about too many other things, so I just don't notice. Don't want to get involved. I got my schedule. I got my agenda. The list goes on. We all have our way of staying in control of our lives. The bottom line, everyone in this room is hurting. I think that's true. Again, I'm using the everyone again. <laughs> but I think it's true. Everyone in this room is hurting. As I pay attention, as I slow my life, my inner life down, for me it's natural to get kind of spinning on the inside and then I've always heard it, I've heard it said that you, there's a couple things you can't do in, the hur in a hurry. And you know what one of them is? You can't love in a hurry. <laughs> Once I'm all hurried on the inside, I can't slow down and love my neighbor. But as I do slow down, as I do pay attention, I might find that my neighbor is a kid at school. Might find it's my son or my daughter. My, co my coworker, my spouse. I think God is very good at bringing people into our lives. Sometimes because of our cause or whatever it might be, we're off moving along and I think that often God is actually pretty good at bringing people into our life. It's more up to us to pay attention of who that might be and we never know. God has a way of bringing our neighbors into our path. And we need to be aware, pay attention, and do what is needed to love them. So then we come to Mary and Martha. And we're, uh, we're bringing this home. We're bringing it for a landing here, okay? <clears throat> Let me read Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home, her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Nothing new here, is it? Two sisters squabbling. We got two girls. <clears throat> Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Don't you love that right there? I think I've heard many, many people say, I'm a Martha, but I'd long to be a Mary. So here's the thing. As we look at the harvest, as we notice our neighbor, we may begin to ask, there is so much to do. Where do I start? 
There's so much to do. Where do I start? I went off to the mission field with this motivation. I want to do great things for God. Pastor author Sung Young Tan remarks, that very statement needs to be healed. Why? There's a lot of ego in my desire to do great things for God. He says, it's not that I do great things for God, it's that I serve a great God. And that, in that place, I can rest. It's not all up to me. And here's the thing. I serve a great God, and he invites me to be with him. Not just to do things for him. He invites me to be with him. So to the question, there is much to do. There's so much to do. Where do I start? I think Jesus' response to us is counterintuitive, and it's counter cultural. Because I think his response is this. Slow down. I think there's so much to do. I got to do more and more and more. I got to speed everything up. I think it's, it's a counter cultural, counterintuitive response. Slow down. Slow down and be with me. Slow down Boy, if we could hear him saying that to us. Slow down and be with me. Boy, if there's anything I've seen coming back to live in America, it's like, how, how do you do it? Man, there is so, everybody's so busy. We define ourselves by busyness. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, it's just so hard. Slow down and be with me. I think, I think we're so used to, to being in such a hurry. I, I'm not sure if we know how to slow down. It's like we need training. We need slow down classes. We need slow down training. Luke 10, 41 through 42. Martha, Martha. You were anxious and troubled about many things. And what happened once she was anxious and troubled about many things? It created in her a need to be in control. <laughs> there it is. In Martha, a need to be in control. She's anxious and, uh, and troubled about so many things. There she goes, up into control. It can happen when I'm reading scripture. I get uncomfortable reading scripture. There I go, up into control. I don't want God to mess with me here. So there she is, back in control, sacrificing life with God. But Jesus says, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus invites us to life with himself. And again, I like to think of that as that's the greatest adventure of life. Figuring out what does that mean? What does that mean for you to live life with God? Not for him, not just being busy, letting him get down into those places that we're uncomfortable with, 
realizing that he's a good shepherd and for him to take care of our soul is a good thing. I don't have to hide. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to deny. I can live this open, wide open life with God and he gives me life. He shares himself with me. Jesus invites us into life with himself. It's a life of relationship. Where's the harvest? I pray and I go where he leads. That simple. I just pray, I'm just prayerful. I go where he leads throughout my day or into the life of another where maybe I'm not comfortable. Who is my neighbor? I pay attention and I do what's needed to love them. There's so much to do. Where do I start? Slow down and learn to be with him. John 15, 9. As the Father, these are Jesus' words to his disciples. As the Father has loved me, so do I love you. Think about that. How much does the Father love the Son? You ever think about that? How much does God love, how, how much does the Father love his Son? What do you think? Give me a response. A lot. <laughs> So listen to what he says. As the Father has loved me, so do I love you. Abide in my love. Wow, what an invitation. Isn't that beautiful? There's so much to do. Where do I start? Slow down and be with him. This is the very long process of the spiritual journey from a life of control to a life of with God. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know those areas of control. You know how we want to hold on to them. Lord, there's areas of control in our lives that we aren't aware. And yet it's affecting our relationship with you. It's, a reflection, it's affecting relationship with others. Lord, it's doing damage. So Lord, may we be open to you. May your spirit have free roam in our hearts and our lives. And Lord, may you take those things from us, Lord. May we simply surrender to you. And Lord, show us the beauty and the, the, yeah, the beauty of the invitation that you desire us to be with you, to slow down to let go and to be with you. Teach us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you invite us into life with you. May that be our great adventure. May that define us as those who walked with God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.